we have a really special offer today and I'm so excited to share it with you. The ultimate giveaway. Do you want to receive one of our planners for free or would you like access to our Instagram growth course worth £59? At My Bump to Baby, we are massively passionate about making sure parents have the protection in place that they need should the worst happen. If you choose to book in with your nearest family law solicitor today to have a look and a chat about your will, or if you book in with your financial advisor to review your family protection or your pension, we will give you access to either our Instagram course with £59 or we will send you one of our amazing planners completely free of charge. To qualify for this, all you need to do is fill in the form at the bottom of this podcast and we will book you in with your nearest advisor. You don't need to take out a policy and you don't need to take out a will. It's just simply having a chat to make sure that you have the protection that you need should the worst happen. We are so excited to bring you this offer and we hope you take advantage of it because protecting your family is the most important decision that you could make today. Hello and welcome to Fifty Shades of Motherhood, uncensored, unhinged and unapologetic motherhood chats around the highs, the lows, the struggles, everything really. Today I am joined by the lovely Holly Matthews who will be sharing her honest journey and struggles of becoming a single mum to her two daughters after losing her husband Ross to cancer just short of three years ago. Today on Fifty Shades of Motherhood, we have the lovely Holly Matthews as our special guest. Hello, Holly. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, we're very excited to talk to you about your motherhood journey. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about you for people that might not know who you are, Holly. Of course. And I'm sure there's plenty of your listeners who don't. So my, my background is that Um, I was a TV actress for many, many years. So I started as a TV actress when I was just 11. And when I tell people that I started work at 11 and I'm from Newcastle, I think they think I was like sent down the pits or something. Like, like, what were you at 11 for goodness sake? But I did, I started actual, an actual job at 11 years old. And I was always very much in my early, really up until becoming a mom and, and still into motherhood as well. But I was completely immersed in the entertainment industry and was on various different TV shows all over the UK and was also signed to Sony for a while. So I released a single, I did Top of the Pops and MTV and was trying to be a pop star for a little bit. I don't know who I thought I was, to be honest. (laughs) 
Oh God, you know, sorry, that reminds me that reminds me of me being in my mirror when I was about eleven, just thinking I was Britney Spears, but honestly, I was a terrible singer actually. But yes. No, oh, I, I'm not gonna be told that I'm not Jennifer Lopez because she's my spirit animal and I, I yeah. At 26, I, I became a mum for the first time. If did I you, got sorry, Holly, did you plan plan for your um for your children or was it just was it planned? No. No, it was it was kind of not caring. My husband and I, when we met, we were we kind of had a bit of a, a whirlwind romance in that we met, and I was living in London. He was from Coventry, and me being from Newcastle myself, so I, I've, I've gone around a bit, you know. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I Haven't we the, all? <laughs> yeah, south the middle. I've, I've travelled the the length of the country, and. Um, <laughs> Because, I, yeah, I, I was with somebody else when I met him. It was obviously a dying relationship. And um, we met and I've, it was a very, you know, very real experience of meeting somebody and just connecting on a different level. And within within days of meeting him, I'd left London and went to Coventry, didn't tell a single person, got the mega bus to Coventry, didn't oh even my. drive, to see whether, how we how I felt was like nonsense or whether it was actually something real. And got there and just didn't really come back, pretty much. Like, that's oh. just how it happened. Where did so you was... meet him then? So, yeah, so we, me and Ross met on a job for PIMS. So we were, um, we were both booked on this job. Ross had just a couple, about a month before, decided that he wanted to do promotional type modeling. And the reason he did was because someone recommended him to it. He got there for this sort of meeting with an agency and um, he saw all the fit girls around and was like, I just need to be in whatever this is. So he was like, can you just register me on this agency? Because it looks like there's loads of fit girls here. That is such and, a clever idea. Yeah. <laughs> smart. I mean, I've got to be honest. He was very well known in Coventry with women. Oh, really? Very well known. In fact, every woman that I met when I came to Coventry the first time was like, so you're going out with him and I was like yeah and I was like then I'd leave that I'd leave that person I'd say you you snogged her as well and he was like yeah yeah her yeah. as well so um so when <laughs> he was, basically he'd, he'd done Coventry literally I think and um, <laughs> so um so we met on that job so we met on a, a job for PIMS and it was a really fun job at a festival and our job was just to chat to people really essentially and get people into this like uh on the PIMS bus and um yeah so we it was a very very that's how I ended up in Coventry but we didn't plan to have kids we just from the minute we met we never really spent time apart and we never got bored of each other truly like it was we were we were pals we were we had a laugh together and we used to say those that play together stay together those that have a laugh together and enjoy each other they're the ones that stay together absolutely yeah and so kids wise we didn't in fact we were on another promotional job when we found out we were working I can't even remember what it was for but we were in Liverpool I remember it well because I'd had stomach pains and he said I bet I've knocked you up <gasps> that's what me right I bet I've knocked you up and I was like what do you mean like firstly why are you saying knocked me up <laughs> like that what on earth are you talking about um so he said that and I was like what actually that's not a stupid suggestion so I got a pregnancy test and we were working on this massive big event but the toilets we were using were the McDonald's toilets in Liverpool 
And I thought to myself, if I am pregnant, I cannot find out in the disabled toilet in McDonald's. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to pay some money and go and pay in the posh toilets down the road. So I did, took the test, came out and just went, I think I'm pregnant. And he said, now bear in mind, my husband was autistic. He was actually on, on the autistic spectrum. He was classed as Asperger's or Asperger's. And um, so he's very direct in his approach to life. Yeah. So I said, I think I'm pregnant. He said, good age. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you, Holly? I was, I was 25. That, well, I was, yeah, I think I was 25. So he went, good age. He just assessed it as logical. You know, like, well, that's a great age. Perfect. That, you know, second one, maybe before 30. Perfect. Yeah. So that was, that was how we, you know, we, there was no, and I never felt fearful of, of, you know, anything. And I was the most, um, like, I was not at all that maternal mom. I wasn't, you know, I'd, I'd never changed a baby's nappy. I rarely held anyone's kids. I, I just didn't have a clue. And I just thought, you know, what, I'll just do this in my own way. We'll work it out somehow. Yeah. And, and you do, was- don't you? As a parent, I think that's, that's something you can, you can just, you just do what feels right to you. And I think that's a, a big thing. Yeah. So when you became a mum for the first time, how was that for you? Was it, did you find it extra difficult because you weren't very maternal or was it, was it quite easy? Did you pick everything up easily? How was that for you yeah, guys? Yeah, so my pregnancy was fine. My um, having and um, give it when I gave birth, I had preeclampsia. So I was six weeks early and I was working right up until the dot. I was still doing promotional. I'm waddling around, of course, but, and I'm really small as well. For those that have never seen me before, I'm like five foot one. And I was, I think I was just over seven stone when I was pregnant, like just not, not at the end of pregnancy, but I was at when I, I was, I'm very, very tiny. So I was waddling around, but still working. And on one particular day, I just had the worst headache. And I remember the midwives had been saying that I was very, I was carrying very small, but being a small person, and I'm sure every mum out there will have had this, they're either too big or too small and you get all worried. And I just sort of thought, look, I'm a tiny human being. Of course, I'm going to have a tiny baby. And I was born at three pound. So I am, and my mum had eclampsia. So hers was really bad. And so there was always that kind of history of maybe that will happen but I was I didn't have a particularly bad pregnancy but then when I gave birth so I gave birth six weeks early we went into hospital with a headache and the doctor came in to explain to me after being doing all the tests what was going to happen then he got rushed out before actually explaining and then the nurse so the doctor hadn't told me anything the nurse came in and went okay then so we're going to admit you when you have the babies in the next few days and I was like what (gasps) I've got six weeks. I haven't read a book. And I was like, Ross, you need to go and this is my husband. I'd be like, Ross, I think you need to go and get some of them magazines that people read about what you do with a baby because I haven't read anything. <laughs> I think I need to know now because <laughs> we've got weeks. Um, so we then, we ended up in special care for two weeks. Brooke, my oldest, she was fine. She was just little. And um, so thankfully she was absolutely fine. I wasn't very well and she wasn't very well afterwards, but just, you know, just generally being early and me having had preeclampsia so we were in special care for two weeks and honestly I can honestly say that was in a weird way the luckiest thing because I got taught how to be a parent I got shown with the sort of cushion of having a nurse like a meter away from me that um, like how to look after a baby how to change an nappy how to bath a preemie baby because she was uh, four pound, hang on, four pound, I've forgotten how, that's terrible, isn't it? Four pound four she was. So she was only little, oh. but quite, I mean, I still think that's quite hearty for a prem baby. 
Yeah, yeah. My son was four twelve, and he was born um, seven. Well, just short of seven weeks yeah. early as well, actually. And but I think when you're a new mum as well, you don't know what's a normal size, anyways. Yeah, you? you're that, like, oh, that seems a perfectly reasonable size to come out of you, a four pound baby. I mean, that seems like how it, the size it should be, not like these yeah. pound babies. That's oh God! I know. Did you have to do it naturally, or was it a C-section then? No, I did. And I honestly only did, I think, because me and Ross had had this full conversation about, you know, what you want to do and all of that. And I'd always said, look, I'll play it by ear. I'm not going to try and be a hero. If it, if I feel bad, I'll, I'll take stuff, whatever I need. But because it was, I wasn't very well and it was actually an emergency in the end. I They induced me and then nothing was really happening. And then they were going to see section and it was only really because Ross said to the doctor, look, is there any way you can try something else first? She really doesn't want a C-section. And the doctor went, we'll try once more. And if there's anything, we'll have to C-section her. Because mm-hmm. he said that I think they would have just done it for, in, in honesty, convenience yeah. for them to just do the C-section. But because he said that and asked, they didn't. And the second, the second time I started to go into labor. So actually... It was I, with both my pregnancies, I did. I was able to not that. I mean, it matters. You do what you've got to do. But I was able to um, have the, have both babies naturally, which mean which meant that at least going forward, I didn't have to think about all the the healing process of a, a C section oh. and stuff. So I was very lucky. So yeah. So as a mom, when I was a new mom, it was very it was very different. But I sort of and I think this came from I did a yoga class when I was um, pregnant, and I remember the yoga teacher saying. Um, like basically just your, your kids never had another mum before. So you, they don't know any different. And that was actually the nicest piece of advice I could have had because we spend all our life comparing ourselves constantly to other things and other people and all of that. And no matter how good we think we are, we still do it. And I think, mm. especially as mums, there's so much judgment on mums. And I just thought to myself, do you know what? I'm going to bring up my kids to be cool little people that like me for who I am and and they won't know any different and so I just thought you know what just because I'm not the motherly mother in that way um I'll do it in my way but actually in reality I kind of am that motherly mother in I mean I might be very straight talking (laughs) and a little bit too sweary with them and a bit honest bit too honest probably at times but my kids can trust me because they know where they're at with me so I think you can do any more than that really yeah no absolutely and I totally agree with you I think there's so much competition out there for mums um as a new mum you just feel so much under pressure and you know even you know when you're having a conversation it's almost like oh is your baby not doing that yet no it's not you know he he won't be shitting himself at 18 years old you know what I mean so it's fine (laughs) do you know don't worry about it but it's hard to kind of balance um you know, everything, all the stress of everything and the things that you feel like you should get right. And, you know, like you think you should have the house tidy, you think you should have the tea ready. Well, actually, no, you don't necessarily have to, you know, just getting through each day is a challenge for me at the moment during this uh, this yeah, time. Exactly. And I think that's the thing. Like, I'm really passionate that people just need to zone in and, and zoom into their own worlds and not be preoccupied by what everybody else is doing. Because even if you think you know what everybody else is doing, you don't. Because people only show you the good bits. And so it's pointless. Nobody shows you the worst bits of themselves. And then you compare your worst bits to their best bits. And it's just a pointless exercise. So I've really tried not to do that as a parent and I'm sure there's been loads of things that I've done as a parent that people have frowned at or people have been like oh is that the right thing to do but you know what they're my children and you know they're great little people and I'm happy with that 
I, that, that's all you can, it's all you can think. I'm happy with them. They're nice little people. They've got good hearts and they do their best and, and that's it. And that's the most important thing, really, I think, um, for raising nice human beings. So obviously, um, a couple of years into your parenting journey, you had another child, didn't you? Um, and then if you can kind of tell us a bit of the story of, of what happened from there, really. Yeah. So I had my second daughter who was called Texas, and she was just two years after Brooks. They're quite close in age. And um in, in my time, that, that time of my life, I was very much, you know, as a family, we had loads going on for ourselves. And so we were very much as a family, we were just um, doing, we were, you know, pottering around together, doing what we wanted to do. And we, both me and my husband made a decision very early on uh, when we had broke my oldest, where we went, do you know what, let's take our foot off the pedal and not go, you know, hell for leather at work and try and make loads, like, let's not like, push ourselves to be busy fools and we'll we will get our payment because we might potentially lose money but we'll get our payment in being around our kids but because of that we just spent time and we really appreciated that time together now what in 2014 so texas was just oh my god when was she born i don't know 2003 so she was yeah she was just turning just after one and um we found out that my husband had brain cancer and it was from the very beginning it was bad so it was grade four it was never it was rare it was normally found was he was he ill then with it like obviously he had to go to the doctors but was it did it just come from nowhere or was it an ongoing kind of thing what happened he was diagnosed with autism a few years before and we so he was diagnosed with autism as, as an adult and so when he started to have symptoms of depression and stress and he was having what we thought were panic attacks in in what we realized in retrospect they were actually small seizures but they manifested very similar to a panic attack so he was having in his left hand his hand would grip ever so slightly for for a minute or so and then release and he would have a wave of anxiety now anyone who's listening who has experienced seizures may recognize that as a form of seizure now i'd only ever seen what they used to call i don't think they do now but grand mal seizures where someone drops to the floor and shakes i didn't understand what those kind of seizures were what he was having they're called focal seizures so it's like where just just one part of your body does something now so he was having depression type symptoms anxiety and we because he'd been diagnosed with autism when he was diagnosed we had been told to try and get the diagnosis before I gave birth because the fast paced change of parenthood might be challenging. And, you know, for autistic people, they often like routine. And as a new parent, there's rarely routine, right? So we mm -hmm. kind of put this down to second, pregnant, you know, second child, suddenly the world's chaotic. So a lot of the things we were thinking, this might be just a symptom of the fact he is autistic and he's not dealing with the fast paced change. So initially it was this feeling of depression, he, but he was also not feeling like there was any reason for it. There was no, he couldn't make sense of it. Then he started to experience headaches and he had these really, for this, the week before he was into, went into hospital, he had these really serious, what like ice pick headaches in his head, horrendous on the floor with these headaches. Oh, and God. On, we'd, been to the, we'd been to our doctors. Our doctors were great. And they had said, look, next time it happens, 
you if you need to because we've been into the hospital once and it was like you just got sent home with paracetamols and stuff because why wouldn't it just be a migraine you know that's the first thing that it probably is and the second time we went to the doctors and the doctor said look next time you have a headache I've got he was on a list for a headache clinic at the time and the doctor our GP said look when it happens if it happens again ring me and I will do a GP liaison and we'll get you into the hospital but with the knowledge that there's something going on so on this morning he started to vomit and his headache was really bad. And I just thought, no, this isn't right. And I didn't, I never, ever once thought brain tumor. I just didn't. Why would you think that? If you've never experienced no. that, you would, your head was, just doesn't go there. Because it, well, when he's young and healthy and fit. And, and it's the worst case scenario, right? That's your worst nightmare. So you don't even want to allow that. And actually, when I was looking at symptoms of things, it was coming up. But I was thinking, well, it's not that. It's not a brain tumor. Like, you just don't think it because how can you possibly let yourself? But when we went to the hospital, we started, he was being prodded and poked and tested. And we were there all day in the hospital. And I started to think, they're going to send him away. This is going to be anxiety related. These are going to be symptoms because in reality, we know they could be. We know that headaches could be an anxiety symptom. It could be a depression symptom. All of these things on their own could be that. So I was thinking it's just going to be that. It's actually, in some ways, there was a feeling of, oh, this is going to be something where we get no answers. And Mm. later on that night, we'd been in the hospital all day. The doctors came in and I have spoken about this in the, in the press and stuff before because it was dealt with really badly on a few occasions. But the doctor came in, opened the curtain and without any warning just went, I'm really sorry, Mr. Blair, that's my husband's name. I'm really sorry, Mr. Blair, but we found an excised tumour in your head. We'll do what we can. We'll potentially offer you surgery. We'll potentially offer you chemo and radio. But if there's nothing else we can do, we'll just keep you comfortable. And that <gasps> was delivered in that in that oh. kind of time as well there was no, oh, there was no like there was no cushion in the blow it was that quick what? and no pre-warning no sit down no do you want a drink nothing and and we just went okay and I looked at my husband and he just went okay what's next and we dealt with it in that way and we were always as a couple very very straight with each other we were very direct i mean having autism and that he was talking about euthanasia and all sorts within the first week of him his diagnosis and he was very blunt and i am a very direct person i don't think he could have went out with somebody who was of a sensitive disposition because nobody wants that conversation a week after finding out their husband's got brain cancer and so we had every conversation and actually you know, as we are now, I'm glad that we've had all of these conversations. But we, um, so when, so yeah, so in, he started to have treatment, he had chemo, radiotherapy, he had brain surgeries. And for three and a half years, we lived with the fact he had brain cancer. And we, you know, largely he was well. And that's a hard thing for people to understand because people will think, well, you've got brain tumor, like, you know, you've got a scar in your head and you're having chemotherapy and they will fill you full of dread. But the one thing about my husband was that he never, ever read anything that he was supposed to have. He didn't read about symptoms. He just went, you know what? This is it. Like, uh, he, he, used to say, he was just very direct. He was like, I don't, I don't know that I've got, you know, they're telling me I've got cancer. I can't fucking feel it in my head. I can't tell that it's there. I don't know. And I'm not going to live my life thinking about it because there's no point. And so he lived like that. And of course, over the time, there was things that were difficult with that. You know, there were certainly seizures and and treatments and stuff that did cause him issues along the way. But largely, 
he was really well. And for that, that time, we lived our life very much just together and we parted around and we, we fit in a, a brain surgery here and a chemotherapy here and we just lived our lives very closely together. Did you know it was, did you know at that point that it was terminal at that stage or was there hope like yeah, that it was, might just kind of? Yeah, there was hope at the beginning. So it's kind of, it's a weird thing, but they tick boxes. So they ticked a cure at the beginning. They would try, they would give it a shot basically. And they would throw everything at it. I mean, they knew how bad it was, but you always just think, you know, we we're both very optimistic people and we just think, well, you just don't know, do you? Some, some people get cured of like really bad cancer and, we just focused yeah. on that and we thought, you know what, it is, it is a bit of a needle in a haystack because they're not only looking to cure a, a really bad brain cancer, but this is also a rare brain cancer that they know even less about. And it's normally found in children and it's normally found in the back of your head and his was at the front. So all of those things feel a little stacked against you. And I think in the back of, I mean, I know for Ross, he always said, look, whatever happens, this thing's going to kill me eventually. Like, I'm not, you know, he's, he's like, I'm giving it all I've got, but eventually whether I'm 50, 60, this thing will get me. This is not something I'm going to get over. And he was just very direct in his thinking. And I don't think that was not being optimistic because he was like, look, I'll get, I, you know, it's for a time it was lying dormant. Essentially it was just not moving. And it was, um, what do they call it when it's like that, when it's just not forgotten what they call it, but it's, it wasn't growing and it wasn't, right. it wasn't decreasing. I mean, you want to hear that it's gone down, but it wasn't, but we sort of didn't appreciate, I think in those moments, how good it is if it's doing nothing, like it's just doing nothing. That's good news. But I don't think we really yeah. got that. Cause you want to hear it's gone. You just want to hear that. That's all you want to know when someone's got, yeah, yeah, it's gone. It's gone. It's not in them. But then in 2016, we went back and they said it had started to grow. And so then we knew this is bad. And we knew we then he was offered a second brain surgery, which he took. And we had a big conversation about that. He asked, you know, he discussed with me whether he wanted to. And, and it's very hard because as a person looking after somebody who is ill and, and somebody that you love and all you want to do is keep them there and all you want is them to be okay, but I had to get to that stage where I had to appreciate that this wasn't just, this wasn't my journey. This was his journey. And that I couldn't make the decision for him if he wanted to go through another brain surgery for it not to work and for it really just to be prolonging. So when we found out in 2016 that it was growing, they then ticked a new box and the new box is prolong. So it's not cure. They know they're not going to cure it. They're just going to do what they can to keep you here for as long as possible. So that in itself was a different space. It was, we have to come to terms with that this, we don't, we still didn't know a timeline, but we knew that, mm. you know, we, you knew that there wasn't going to be a forever, but it did come much quicker than we probably anticipated. So we had the surgery in the, when did he have it? So the October maybe of that year, no, sorry, the August of that year. That's it. This, and then the October of that year, it was actually, his brother moved his wedding forward so that just to make sure, which was a good decision. And um, yeah. he moved his wedding so Ross could be best man. And at the wedding, we knew that the cancer was growing even just a few months after the surgery. Nobody else knew, which was really, really difficult. And um, they then saw that it was starting to grow. Now we just, they kept trying different things. And so there was always that bit of hope, you know, they would try this new chemotherapy and we'll try this and see what happens there. And there was always that feeling of hope. But by the May of that year, we had gone to Turks and Caicos on holiday. 
We went out as, mm. there as a family, got a friend out there, beautiful part of the world. We had a lovely holiday. I didn't think he was right on the holiday. I just didn't feel right. I didn't, couldn't explain it. Wasn't right. And, and just things he was saying weren't quite right. Got back and he had, it was actually just the week of his birthday. And I remember the girls and I were sat at the kitchen table and we were writing out 32 reasons sorry yeah 32 reasons why we love dad and we were writing that down and I turned around and I saw him going into this really weird seizure where he was just chatting nonsense and fleeing around and from there for me that's when we lost Ross so it wasn't his his death which was in the August of that year it was there because as much as the people can pretend and there was moments of Ross from there you know, he had a seizure and he, and he came back, but he, he was, he was disabled. He was from that point, he, he was brain damaged and he was, there was moments of him, but he was not right. And so for me, it was almost the months leading up to his death where I was having to just acknowledge what was happening. And in as much as the reality of it is very different to you know, the anticipation of somebody um, dying, you go through this like grieving process before it happens, like a pre. Yeah. So like before it actually happens, because you've already lost the person that you once knew. And is that how it works? Yeah. And I think because it's brain and anybody who's experienced, you know, whether it's dementia or any kind of brain stuff, that's what happens. You lose the person earlier. They go. And I was very lucky in that. So I, I mean, the worst, truthfully, that some of the, the worst bits was telling the kids because. They, did they know what was going on? Did they what during all this? In 2016, when he had the, the second surgery, we had to tell them and they were so little. I mean, I can't even remember their ages. They were so little we had to tell them because we didn't know whether they would come out of that. You know, it's such a surgery and we didn't know what would be left of him. You know, you're tinkering around in someone's brain. You don't know what's going to happen on the other side of that, what might be left of them. Now, thankfully he was great. The day, a few days after he'd done brain surgery, the second time he was picked wallpaper in Texas's bedroom. And she'll remember that. She remembers that even now. She's like, dad was so brave. You know, he just, he was doing this and he was doing that straight after having his brain surgery. But he was, I mean, he was just back to normal. So for them, it's not a tangible thing. You know, like, he, yes, he had brain cancer, but what does that mean? What does that mean to, to little kids? It doesn't mean anything. When, he, mm-hmm. when we knew that he was going to die, when I knew, and the doctor had told me that, um, in a corridor, by the way, which was pretty horrendous. Oh, doctor again, like this is. Oh. Was this the same doctor? No, but it was actually the same hospital. And I've actually done. I've been invited to speak at. Um, I was asked to speak at a brain surgery, neurosurgery conference not long ago, where I got to say to those neurosurgeons, "I don't care. I don't care if you connect with what you're saying. I don't care that you've said it a hundred times before. Just fucking fake it." fake your empathy if you have to because it's the first time I've heard it but the doctor said to me we've been told that he had fluid on his brain so they didn't say anything about this was when he had the seizure and then the doctor came to me and I said we're waiting on a we're just waiting on we've been told we're waiting on a scan so I said we're waiting on a scan I'm just trying to find out what's happening with it I haven't heard anything and we've been waiting for days he said to me stood by the nurse's station in the middle of a corridor um well he's got he he has um brain tumors throughout his brain he's not going to come back from this. Do you want, and then he took me to one side and he said, do you understand the severity of this? I honestly, like, I was like, do you, 
do you, and I could see the nurses behind him by this time, because of my acting background, all the newspapers were running stories on this. So the nurses behind knew who I was and they knew what was happening. And they were just like gobsmacked behind him, just like looking at me, shaking their heads. Like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I was like, do you understand the impact on my life? Like, do you understand the severity of what you're saying to me? It was awful. That, that was awful. And then having to tell the kids, I was very lucky because I had met um, Jeff Brazier, who was um, Jade Goody's ex-partner and, and has, you know, the dad of her kids. I'd met Jeff years ago and didn't particularly know him or anything, but we connected on Twitter and around the time of it, obviously it was in the papers and stuff. He messaged me and said, can I give you a call? And he gave me a call at the hospital. I remember I was sat outside and we, we just had a bit of a chat about telling the kids. And I said, I feel like I need to tell the kids now, you know, we don't know what Ross is going to be like in a week's time. He could, you know, we could tell him something. He could bark at them. You know, when, when it's your brain, you don't know what somebody's going to do. And he really didn't understand by then. He'd been told he was, he was going to die and he didn't understand he didn't really get what was happening. And he actually said to me when I asked him what was happening, he said, yeah, they're trying to kill me. They're trying to kill me. They're putting oh. stuff in my drinks now. And, and he didn't get it. And we were lucky that I made the decision after speaking to Jeff and him saying, you need to give the children a chance to say goodbye. You need them to say sorry if they think they've done something wrong. In the same way we need as adults, the kids need it too. And I was so, I'm so glad that I did. And I got brave because honestly, it was the worst conversation of my life. Like the, I, I oh. felt physically sick all night. I was like shaking with worry. And, you know, everyone was there. We told the girls, they were hysterical, as you can imagine. And how old were they then, Holly? How old were they both? Oh, oh God, it's you're forgetting how old. Sorry, I'm asking you a math question now. Um, I know. have been so nice. So book was six. Yeah, book was six. Oh. Four. Yeah, that was right. Oh, my God. And so they understood, but they didn't understand. And thankfully, Ross was able to just smile and get it, like not say anything inappropriate. And then went very quickly, went downhill. So we he was in a hospice. Um, a few we were sent home and it was just completely inappropriate and actually to the point where the nurse the um, end of life care nurse who came to see us actually cried because she was like I was like I don't know what like I'm five foot one Ross is six foot and you've got a five foot one man who has a brain injury doing stuff that's actually really dangerous and I can't look after him and I you know Ross was very black and white on life. He was like, I'm dead or I'm alive. And I'm not fussed about where I am. When I'm dead, put me into ashes and chuck me in the bin. I ain't bothered. Like, and it wasn't, it was just no pretense. Like we were very direct about life. And so Mm. I didn't have any, you know, he wants to be at home or anything like that. I just was like, he just needs to be comfortable. And being in the hospice, we were in um, Mighton Hospice in Warwick, which they were just incredible. And while we were in there, we, I decided while I was sat there thinking, I can't believe that this is a charity. <laughs> this is not funded by the government, this service. Oh. And I, I sat there and I just like, I'll just set up a, you know, a charitable, just give him page. And within about a week, we had 13,000 pound oh. in there. Wow. And it was able my, my, in my head, I was like, I just need to be able to pay for his care. And they said to me, it was nine, I think it was 9,000 pound 
a, a week or something to have somebody in there. It was a crazy amount. And I was like, if we can just pay for what he's used, then I'll feel like I've given back. And we have over time. But it was, so when we were in there, you know, it allowed me, while there was pockets of Ross being there now and then in the first week, it allowed me to be his wife and not his carer and to be able to say goodbye. And they were just incredible. But it, from the kids' point of view, they didn't see him for the last two weeks. So I actually decided at one point that it just wasn't right for them to be there. Yeah, and because they've said that good, they, they saw him at a good time and yeah. I suppose things were deteriorating quite quick, were they? And eventually he just went to sleep and there wasn't anything to see. And I just thought, you know what? They don't need to see that. They've, they've had a moment where they've said goodbye and that's all they really need to do. And along the line, I just was very honest and I still am with my girls. I've never, I don't lie to them. And so sometimes I guess, you know, I am brutally honest on every, on everything. There is not, a, if they ask me a question, they'll get the real answer because mm-hmm. at one, I can't remember what all the lies are supposed to be about life. <laughs> like how do yeah. people, how do babies made? I'm like, mm, people have sex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't have the lies in me because I just want to be honest. Like I've got an obsession with just being real and honest and authentic. And, and I want my kids to understand, you know, when they've gone through something like this, you can't bullshit them. You just can't. They need you to be real. And I remember Brooke, you know, she was only six and they're such insightful kids. She said to me, when Ross went into the hospice, she said, mom, is dad going to come out of this hospice or is he going to die there? And I said, he's going to die here, darling. And that, I mean, just saying that, I mean, I could see his mom, you know, he's a gorgeous person. And I could see his mom just like, I can't, like, she just didn't want to have that conversation. And I get it. It's normal to have that conversation with a six-year-old. It's heartbreaking. And I remember the week, sorry, the two days before he died, my girls were with my sister and I had been by Ross's bedside and hadn't really seen the girls for a week. And, you know, I'd been in there a month. I wasn't living with them. I was coming, you know, I hadn't seen them for a, for a week. And Brooke rang me and she said, Mom, I miss you so much. And I was like, I know, darling. And she said, but I'm scared because I know that when you come home, that means dad's dead. And I was like, oh, my God. And, that was, yeah. and, and that's it, you know. And, and when I did come home, there was that moment of, and I actually remember just before I spoke to Jeff Brazier on, on WhatsApp before, and he said, when you tell them, make it something special, don't make it a sad thing, do something. Children are so adaptable. Children are so resilient. If you need to get balloons, if you need to get cake, you need, and it sounds so weird to us as adults, because it seems like we need to be morbid, but actually children don't work that way. If you can make it a positive experience, even in the worst moment of their life, then it gives them something. And so we went in and I, I initially, they were excited because I was home. And then there was that moment of this means that dad's died. And I mm-hmm. cried. And then I said, after, you know, a time of us crying and being together, I said, should we draw some pictures? And he said, yeah, let's draw pictures. And I remember because, and I've got it somewhere, Brooke drew a picture and it was already colorful and happy, which is always a positive sign with kids. And she drew a picture of everybody in the family and she had drawn Ross, but she drew him just slightly off the side of the family like away and I think that was her way of processing that he wasn't there and that was just her way of doing it and you know it's even since then every day that we I have come you know I've continued to be honest with them and they have asked me some questions that would make you sob they, they're just oh god even this is getting me I've got a lump in my throat I mean oh. kids, you know kids will say the things that adults don't want to ask you know they'll say I've got a wet my wedding ring has got three diamonds in it there was actually no intention in it. Just my uncle's a jeweler. And I was like, just pop some diamonds in it. That's fine. Um, yeah. But 
in retrospect, I've always said, well, that's one for you, one for you, Brooke, one for you, Texas, and it's one for daddy. And I always said that. And I remember Brooke early on saying, so does that mean you have to take that stone out because dad's dead now? And I was like, oh. Oh, God. <laughs> they is- just remember things, don't they? They really do. Um, oh, God, bless her. I know. And it's, I mean, the thing is, and for those that are listening, I mean, I know my experience isn't exactly the norm. It's not, not the norm though either. And I've certainly learned there are lots and lots of people because I see so many people in my groups and in my community online and people who come to me and go, I don't know how you're dealing with this. And, and actually, you know, since Ross's death, that is kind of how I, I don't, I was already very heavily involved while Ross was going through Um, when he was diagnosed with brain cancer, that really pushed me into doing self-development as a job. So that in itself was, um, what I found is I started to talk about the stuff I'd always done. I mean, I've done self-development since I was a a really young kid, even when we didn't have the internet and nobody knew what self-development was. And I didn't, I just knew I didn't want to feel rubbish. And actually when I was a kid, I grew up on television that brings with it its own, you know, mental health stuff and not feelings of inadequacy and all of that kind of stuff. So I always did it. And so I started to talk about that when Ross was diagnosed and people around me kind of flocked towards me to understand and wanted to know more. And because like you, I'm an entrepreneurial person, I made it into my work. And when Ross died, I felt, I felt an obligation. There was a huge amount of press around Ross's death. It was in every major newspaper on the front cover of some of them. I was on Lorraine, on the BBC, on ITV, talking about it. And largely because, one, because there's a, there's a hook for them, the story that I'm an actor, but also because I'd spoken online about it. And I know, and I'd vlogged during the time of being in hospice, and, and I know for a lot of people that might seem distasteful. One, I don't care. <laughs> no, I, you one, know... I shit if people feel that however from from a a way for people to understand my perspective when I grew up on television that was my safe space I went to a pretty rough school where you know I was the kid off the telly and although I was I was fairly popular in the popular group at school I it wasn't easy at my school though it was a lot of you know stuff I dealt with and so when I went on set and I was there that was my safe space in front of the camera I'm very very comfortable there and so actually as weird as it is to other people to stick a camera in my face and me to speak, that's actually a very comfortable space for me. And it's a way for me to work out my own feelings. And I also knew at some point the girls would want to understand at some point, maybe I'd want to look back and understand what I went through. And also that there was going to be other people watching. And I looked for people talking in at my age, in my kind, you know, my kind of person And I wanted to find that when I was in the hospice, I wanted to look for somebody to lead my way. And I didn't find it. I didn't find people talking like me who were honest and who were, you know, saying the things that were uncomfortable. And so I remember in the hospice thinking, well, if I can't see it, I'll be it because someone else needs this as well. And that was actually something that drove me through that time because it was a focus for me to go, I'll talk about this, I'll talk openly, I'll talk about the uncomfortable bits, those moments when you love somebody and they're dying in front of you and you desperately want them to stay, but part of you wants them to let go. Now that's uncomfortable, but you, you, you're watching somebody who's you know just basically starving in front of you that's a horrible space to be in and no one to talk about that because you want to be the the person that goes I never wanted them to go but actually there's a moment especially in those end of life stage where you go 
I need you to let go now. Like, I need this to be it. I need this to be over yeah. for, for everybody. And I tried to talk about that stuff. And actually, after his death, I found so many people were gravitating towards me and asking, how are you dealing with it? When I can't deal with the fact the washing's up the wall and the kids are playing up. Uh, how are you dealing with it? And so I did, you know, I tapped into entrepreneurial mode and I thought I can't people right now because I'm grieving and sad. And, but what I can do is I can put something together, an online program, and I'll make it easy for people. I'll make it cheap for people so that everyone can do it. And that means I can package up my knowledge with a little bow on it and I can send it out and people, I can send people to that. And I honestly, this was how the happy me project, my first happy me project one was, was born. And I honestly had no expectation from a financial perspective or, you know, a business move. It wasn't like that. It came from a very organic place. And you know, we are nearly three years down the line from that program being um, released. And I have seen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people across the world do that course. And I'm so glad that I see, you know, I get to see so many people getting benefit from that. It's just something good to have come from something awful. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes the best ideas are kind of when you're at your lowest point, because I think that's when you recognise where other people, how low they must feel and you just want to help and you just, you know, and then all of a sudden you have this idea. I mean, God, I hadn't been through anything like what you had, so I'm not trying to compare it at all, but with my with my bump to baby with the pregnancy to preschool directory that was launched because I got that low with my mental health um and then I went to this class and it wasn't on and I was like for fuck's sake and I was just crying in the car and it it was just a moment of like why isn't there an up-to-date class and I'm not by any means comparing it to what you went through but that was the start of my kind of journey as well and like um it is it, it's that, that is back amazing. against the ropes feeling isn't it it's that and also what you said there like I never I never want to play top trumps on sadness okay because whatever someone's going through when you're at that moment whether it's because you're grieving whether it's because you the class wasn't on and your mental health's not good whether it's because the washing's up the wall if you feel sad and shitty you feel sad and shitty yeah and it doesn't matter where it's coming from because the feeling's the same and so for me like especially when I'm coaching people I mean I know that people need to know my background they need to understand and that's why I share it because people do need to know I my life is good right even with everything that's happened, if, if you looked at my life, you would say, I've got a nice house. I've got money in the bank. I've got a, a successful business. I've got opportunity, lovely children, you know, all of this stuff. I'm very privileged and lucky in many, many ways. And so if you weren't to understand the other side of it, the trick, the harder side, the challenging side, the sad side, then you might think, well, how can she tell me anything? You know, so how can she tell me anything? She ain't been in. And and so I share it because I want people to know, no, I've been there. I'm in the trenches with you. Like I live and breathe the stuff that I talk about. I am not, I'm not into this pop, you know, toxic positivity where you have to be happy all the time. Sometimes you need to sit and watch Netflix in your pants and cry. That's what you in your fat pants, though. Yeah. I only do it in my fat only pants. Only the fat pants, not the sexy pants. No. Not what are those? What are those? <laughs> I haven't even got any of them now. I don't think they'd fit on me. Um, <laughs> um, but I totally get that. No, no, completely. So so after after Ross passing away and stuff like that, I mean, obviously, you developed this fantastic business. and um, But did you find that your finances were affected? Did you have life insurance in place? Or was that something that you didn't? have um so is that we, 
yeah so it's something suddenly you when when someone when your partner dies you suddenly realize that is something that you have to think about right now i was i would suggest a very unusual case in that ross was had his had property now don't get me wrong that has been a challenge in itself because me and ross were very um straight in every aspect of our life so we had our own finances we both had our own businesses and we also had our collective finances that's how we were we, we had our family stuff and then we had our own stuff and so the properties were ross's they weren't mine he had them before he met me and although we owned properties together he had his own stuff so actually financially I was okay purely and, and Ross actually continued to provide for us because I have the properties and I rent them out. So I get a rental income from those properties. Now, don't get me wrong. That's not absolutely like we're not balling. We're not rolling deep because of that, but it certainly was much, much easier. And I didn't have life insurance. Now Ross's uncle is a mortgage advisor. And after Ross's death, he phoned me because he felt so guilty because he sells life insurance to people. And the reason we didn't was because of Ross, because at the time Ross was diagnosed at 29. So he, he didn't think he was going to get sick. You don't think you're going to get sick at 29. It's something you put off and you think, God, you know, you're young. You're like, you're not going to die. Like that's how we see it. And he should have, in, in reality, he should have done that. And actually since then, you know, I look, I've met a lot of women, particularly women, because often, and this isn't me being sexist, this is reality. So people can call me out, but this is a reality is that there are lots of families where the men, the man is the main earner in reality. And so often women are much more affected by their partner dying. And from a government perspective, what you get from the government is diabolical. Like, I think it's £300 a month. Um, it's Who can live on that? You can't. You couldn't even keep your own house. I mean, I... The, no. the reason why I mentioned that, obviously, we, when I used to work in a bank, there was this woman who came in and she um, was in, she'd just met this um, guy and they had a child together. They weren't married. He was still married to his ex-wife and he had children with her and um, he owned the house and they said, they were talking about life insurance and she was like, come on, let's do it. And he was like, no, no, I'll think about it. Anyway, she came in a couple of weeks later and he was only 40 and he died oh. and they had a child together, but they weren't married. So his ex, well, his wife, but ex-partner basically kicked this new woman out of the house. Oh um, that was all because they didn't have a will and stuff like that. But yeah. it's all linked. It's, it's just people, I suppose you always think, don't we like, oh, we'll, we'll get round to it. Oh, I'll mm. do it next week and stuff. But we'll buy that pizza, you know, that's like 20 yeah. quid or whatever. And a lot of the time life insurance is even less than that. So it is, it is something we're worth um thinking about yeah it no, really no. Is. and I definitely think people who are listening you, you're so right we do put off and it's really important that actually you you do think about it because we just we don't know and you know what you can also even get payouts when it's just really serious so if you you know I say just I don't mean just it, when it's really serious yeah. cancer or something like you can get a payout in before actually the death happens and that is really important the one thing that we said we were financially comfortable because of the entrepreneurial work that we did and actually when Ross was diagnosed I remember us sitting in the hospital and going and just sitting and just taking stock of what we needed to do to beat the cancer and you know, to think how we can get through this. I remember sitting there thinking, do you know what? We are so lucky, one, that we've had kids 
because that might not have been an option, that we have our own home, that we haven't got any issues we need to deal with. We haven't got any gambling issues or alcohol issues or anything we need to deal with now. And we've got money in the bank and we could probably last a year without stressing. We could pay for stuff and we'd Mm. have to be a bit careful for doing nothing, but Mm. we would be okay. And honestly, like it's the one thing you don't want to think about when someone gets bad cancer, like when someone gets really sick or anything, any way you get really sick, you don't want to think about money. And certainly when you're grieving, that is the last thing you want to be thinking about. I mean, it's just the, the fact I had to even just dealing and bear in mind, Ross had a will just dealing with getting the properties put into my name and how that would work. Even that was horrendously stressful. And no, it's, I, I don't, I'm, I understand my own privilege. I'm not, it's a nice problem to have, but actually it was horrendously stressful during a time when I was grieving and also dealing with the fact I'd suddenly become a single mom. I'd suddenly had to deal with my children's grief and everybody around me grieving and also eyes on everything I was doing because everywhere I went, everybody knew what was happening everywhere there was never a time when it's only been re- in the recent years that I've had to say oh Ross my husband died when Ross died I would in fact the, the day my girls I mean literally when when he died we the week after uh, sorry not the week after the the next month the month after the girls started a new school we moved house I had to get a new car because it was a disability car and everything changed like everything changed and I remember Texas starting school for the first time obviously Ross wasn't there didn't get to see that I was in a a stressful panicky state you know going into that all the emotions run high I left the school and I I've never done it before either it was raining and I whacked into someone's wing mirror and because I was just in a flap coming out of the school and I got I pulled the car up it was just outside the school got out and I was like I'm so sorry I'm so sorry like I'm, I'm really sorry just let me know what the damage is whatever and the guy the guy who I didn't know went it's okay Holly it's fine I'll give you a call later but it's, I'll get you to give I give him I had given him my number I'll give you a call later but don't worry I know what's happening and I was like uh-huh. I mean you imagine the tears come then because then you're like oh, oh my god but it was just a very weird space to suddenly be you know, you don't want to think about the finances in that stuff. And thankfully I didn't have to, but I'm an unusual case in that. If you haven't got life insurance, that's all you'll be thinking about in those first stages. If you haven't got money there. It's, it's the case of like when someone has to be off work because they're ill as well. It's like, it's the whole package, isn't it really? But it is very important. I mean, how did you find like after that then like being a solo parent was that a struggle or did you just have to just get on with it did you find it difficult to grieve I just got on with it I mean I've got a very supportive family Ross's family are amazing and actually for the first six months we stayed with his mum not because of me wanting to stay there other than our house that we we were renovating a house and so that wasn't finished. So we actually stayed with his mom. But I don't know if that was a benefit or not. I mean, she's amazing. Genuinely, I'm not just saying this. She's never going to listen to this anyway. <laughs> she just, she's not a podcaster. So she um, might be my next guest. You never know. <laughs> but she's not. I'm not just saying that. She genuinely is a really easy person oh. to be with. So I'm very, very lucky in that respect. And that's not the case for everybody's in-laws. But I am very lucky and have that support. But do you know what? I... Me and Ross, when we met, we were, we always said we were lone wolves that found each other and managed to slot into each other's lives. I've been always been able to take care of myself and look after myself. And the day 
I wanted, I wanted to deal with reality and I know everyone wants a cushion, but I didn't, I don't deal with stress like that. I have to look the tiger in the eye and I have to tell myself what's happening. Otherwise it won't feel real. I never once says, said, I, Ross has passed away or we've lost Ross. I said, Ross died. And because I needed to hear that, I needed to, needed to make sense of that. I needed to understand that it happened. And the day after his funeral, which was like, I mean, that the funeral itself was like there was probably 500 people at the funeral and oh there was paparazzi God. outside. I mean, it was insane. The second we, the second we finished the funeral, I was getting sent pictures of Ross. People, there'd been paparazzi in the, in the, the place where we had the funeral. Were like, you mad about that or were you accepting of it? Well, I didn't really, I mean, you don't really have a choice as such. And the Daily Mirror, not Daily Mail, they hadn't taken pictures of the children. So I was glad of that. They had clearly made a conscious effort not to have pictures of the children. And I didn't know they were there. So they'd obviously been respectful. And the Daily Mirror, I think I had done, I had spoken to them beforehand and they said, there's going to be press there. And I, I knew there was nothing I could really do about that. So I just said, look, can you please be respectful? Like that was one of the newspapers, at least I could say with them. They were, I mean, they didn't, I just didn't know they were there. So it's fine. But it was that in itself is just, a, I mean, I've, I've always had some eyes on what I'm doing from being really young doing TV and not that it was ever, you know, the dizzying heights of Hollywood, but I've always had a platform so that was but that was a different level on it in a different time of my life where I'm experiencing all of this stuff in the public eye and that was something very different and very exposing and you know there was benefits of it in that I didn't have to explain to people what happened it's not very nice having to to bump into people and tell them that your husband's died but the next day after the funeral I actually had some vouchers for Butlins and they were going to expire and I thought, you know what, I'm going to take the kids to Butlins. And um, everyone was freaking out around me. Like, are oh, you going to be okay? You can't <sighs> go to Butlins anymore. Do you want us to come? And I was like, do you know what? No, because for the kids, kids aren't like us. They're resilient. Kids are just like, yeah, you were going to Butlins. I mean, yeah. jokes aside, at Ross's funeral, the kids were running around because there were so many people in our house running around going, it's like home alone. Everybody's here. Texas cried. I mean, she. Texas cried in the funeral car on the way back from the funeral because she bumped into her teachers who came to the funeral, and she was crying in the way back from her dad's funeral because she wasn't going to see her teachers again. I mean, that's kids. That's real. It is. That's their honest little worlds. And so we went to Butlins the next day, and don't get me wrong. There was times in Butlins when I burst into tears because I was there seeing families together and thinking, I, oh my God. And in those, you know, that early stage, people, I'm not the person, I'm not really the person you put your arm around. I'm not that person, especially when it comes to really big stuff, because I... I feel like I've got to walk through it myself. And I don't mean that alone. I don't mean that I'm not supported. What I mean is that you can't make this go away. So I have to, I have to make sense of this. And so for me, it was right. This is the new normal. Me and the girls are on a one. We have to work this out and we have to make sense of what that means for us. And I think having that mindset has helped me. I didn't ever have a cushion, even though I had people around and people would have been there in a heartbeat and people were there and people were very supportive and they did things like brought me food. So my issue was I wasn't eating at all. 
my stress in my stress some people overeat i under eat and i just wasn't eating so people were bringing me food and that was really helpful so if you have somebody going through tough times bring them food do their washing do the stuff they don't even want to think about and don't ask them because they'll say no just bring them food and just put yeah. it on the doorstep and don't have any worries if they if they've been it or they don't eat it no worries but you've done it because if people put food in front of me i ate if people didn't i didn't care so things like that were actually really very helpful but becoming a single parent and actually the acknowledgement of that the first year there's always somebody if you need it there was always a cushion if I needed it like there was always not that they were there all the time but if I needed somebody to come and have the kids for an hour someone was there yeah wow so um Holly so just to finish off what is it that you're up to now then and where can people find you Absolutely. So now I run the Happy Me Project. So I have the Happy Me Project 1, which is the initial one that I spoke about. 21 days of online self-development. You get a This is a course you do on your own. And I try to get it 21 days, 21 days to make a habit. And it's really straight talking to the point self-development. You get audios, some videos, a work, printable workbook, and then you get put into my Facebook group. Now you can join my Facebook group without doing that course as well. And I'll talk about that in a second. You also get the, there was also the Happy Me Project 2. Now that was launched this year. That is a bigger course. The Happy Me 1 is £30. The Happy Me 2 is £60 because it's a God, way bigger course. That's such so reasonable, that. I know. And I get, I get um, other business like coaches and I've actually had a few really huge business coaches who've done my courses and they they're like you're insane like that's so cheap but there's logic in it for me i want everyday men and women to be able to do my stuff i want dave the builder and negative sue from down the road to be able to do the courses and learn how to think more positively how to you know feel more confident and the happy me project too is about self-belief and confidence so they can get both of those. I've also got some online meditation series all under the Happy Me Project umbrella. And then I have some free options, which are my YouTube channel. Um, so that my YouTube channel has loads and loads of years of self-development chat on there. My Instagram, I put daily stuff on there. And my Facebook group, the Happy Me Project Facebook group. And so every weekday I'm doing lives, essentially free life coaching in that group they are either 10 a.m or i'm going to do a couple of I'm, I'm just started this week doing some evening ones as we move into a new stage of lockdown where people are going back to work people can find me by typing holly matthews into the internet and if they can't find me their internet is broken and they should <laughs> vote somebody and get them in because i'm everywhere but you can also type in the happy me project and you'll get links on there as well but i like hanging out on facebook and instagram probably the most although i'm on all of them yeah Holly, so what we'll do is we'll add all Holly's show um, links into the show notes. So thanks so much for telling your story, Holly. I really, really appreciate it. You're welcome. You're so welcome. And, and I look forward to seeing lots of your, your listeners. And do let me know where you've come from. If you've come from this um, this podcast, then do let me know so that I can give Carla the heads up and let her know you came from there. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Holly. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of 50 Shades of Motherhood. I thoroughly enjoyed it and I hope you guys did too. If you are enjoying the podcast so far, which I really hope you are, and if you've got this far, why are you still listening if you don't? Um, But I would absolutely love you to subscribe and leave me a little rating. It means the world to me and also helps me out massively, especially when I go to Danny and tell him that I'm going to be doing series two, fingers crossed. So 
I look forward to speaking to you next week and keep an eye on the Facebook page and Instagram so you know who the next guest is. You will absolutely love it. I know it. This podcast is sponsored by My Bump to Baby Family Protection and Legal Directory. Being a parent is such a minefield. It's so difficult deciding who to select when it comes to financial advice or family law solicitors. My Bump to Baby works with one trusted financial advisor and one trusted family law solicitor in each town throughout the whole of the UK. To find your nearest advisor or family law solicitor, head over to www.mybump2baby.com forward slash family protection legal. We have a really special offer today and I'm so excited to share it with you, the ultimate giveaway. Do you want to receive one of our planners for free? Or would you like access to our Instagram growth course worth £59? At My Bump to Baby, we are massively passionate about making sure parents have the protection in place that they need should the worst happen. If you choose to book in with your nearest family law solicitor today to have a look and a chat about your will, or if you book in with your financial advisor to review your family protection or your pension, we will give you access to either our Instagram course with £59 or we will send you one of our amazing planners completely free of charge. To qualify for this, all you need to do is fill in the form at the bottom of this podcast and we will book you in with your nearest advisor. You don't need to take out a policy and you don't need to take out a will. It's just simply having a chat to make sure that you have the protection that you need should the worst happen. We are so excited to bring you this offer and we hope you take advantage of it because protecting your family is the most important decision that you could make today.